0: Uh, My name is Richard. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Um, It's been such a joy to meet and get to know so many of you, and today's text is really uh, a text that I must give you a warning on the start end, because um, as I think about the implications of this text, it often brings tears of joy to my heart as I see faces and and I think about all God has done in this neighborhood, in this community, and even in the lives of my brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone. Um, I can't help but be overwhelmed by God's grace and his goodness, and so um, if you see me get the ugly cry or anything like that, feel free to grab me a tissue. Um, I'll try to keep it under control, but let's go to God's word and let's hear what he has to say today. 1 Thessalonians 2, I'm in the NIV, it says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, and as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses. You are witnesses and so is God of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you whom, who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Would you join me as we pray to this God? Father, I pray that today as we read your word, Father, would you overwhelm us with the privilege that it is to not only know you, but to share our souls and lives with one another. God, help those who feel that they have nothing to offer whether those within the family of Christ or even those on the outside, Father, I pray that you would stir within their hearts a reminder that you have entrusted to them the gospel, that your spirit is at work in their lives and that because of those things alone, they have more than enough to offer a world looking for truth and authenticity, a world looking to know a God who is real and who is alive and who cares for them so much so that he would send his son and not only send his son, but he would send his people into their lives to intersect in such a way that they could point them to you. Father, this love is amazing. This love that you've given us, we can now freely give to others, and so I pray that this day we would be encouraged to do that very thing. Father, I pray that as a community and as a family of God, that we would sow deeply and richly into one another's lives, that we would experience the sense of delight and joy that Paul has for the Thessalonians, that we would long for times where we come together as family, that we would not view those things as opportunities that we can simply dismiss. But Father, I pray that those things would be the things that we look forward to in our weeks to connect with one another, to encourage one another, to learn of one another, Lord. Father, would we be reminded that our lives are not our own, that you have purchased them, that you have paid the cost, and so therefore I pray that in light of that, Father, would we freely give our lives away as as a sign of gratitude for all that you've done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. as we read this text today it's so close and so near to my heart and our hearts as pastors here and those who are members here because we've been impacted by the reality of how powerful the Christian life can be when we just share it with others having lived in this neighborhood for the past four years we've met people and seen how so often people's perception of what it means to be a Christian or what it is to really know God is so distorted and confused simply because they've never had the opportunity to witness the power of the gospel in somebody's life. Oftentimes it's it's hard to drive through this neighborhood and to see the hopelessness and to see the brokenness and to see how Families are destroyed and broken and see all those things and I can't help but asking myself the question Lord How are you going to penetrate all of that? How are you really going to change a community that's Plagued with nothing more than oppression in many ways? How are you going to get into the crevices of all that and and bear fruit in such a way that it would bring you glory? In many ways, this is the question and the feelings that as Paul writes a letter to the church at Thessalonia, you can imagine that as he enters a city full of idols, a city where religious charlatans have preyed upon the city because of their wealth, bringing, under, bringing in the name of a God or the name of their philosophy or the name of their traditions, underneath that all was simply the desires for gain, wealth, and status. It's not, it probably doesn't catch any of us off guard that this is not something uncommon in our day as well. That we can look at our cities and see churches and see communities that are laden with different ideologies and different philosophies and people trying to peddle a message so that they can get rich and wealthy. It happens right here. You can drive around and see churches on every corner you can drive around and see mosques and temples and all of these things that people believe to be the right way. However, as you interact with the, those that are within the community and those that may be your friends even now, when they find out you're a Christian, when they find out that you're a Christian, immediately a sense of skepticism takes place. Immediately, there's this sense of, oh, not another one. Oh, you're one of those. And off the bat, you can somewhat get offended. Like, I don't even know you. How have you already determined who I am as a person? But one thing that is so familiar, one thing that is so common among story after story of as you get into people's lives and you see is that at the bottom of all of that skepticism lies hurt. It lies a sense of being deceived and being told one thing but then their lives did not match the very message that they claimed to proclaim. Today as Paul dives right in, he's going to address not not only that very thing as he himself has fallen under the scrutiny of those who were remaining in that city, but he's also going to pen a letter to those that he loves. He's going to let us into his approach and his um, his methods of ministry in such a way that we can peer in and see how this how God has used him to blow up a city. So, as we dive in, I want us to want to remind you all and share with you all what our heart as a church is that as a church we exist simply to display the greatness of Jesus Christ in the everyday lives of its people. As we share that mission with some, we're often confronted with the reality that for some people that's too simple. For some they want to know, well, what are you really doing as far as mission goes? Are you opening up homeless shelters? When are you going to have outreaches? When are you going to do, 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 do these things that we believe the church should do? Now, I'm not saying that those things are wrong, but what I am saying is that oftentimes we underestimate the power of the gospel when it transforms a life, and then when it's put on display, how that can impact those that are looking on the outside. This is the of the text where Paul who has been tremendously impacted by this good news this this message now he has shared his life with a group of individuals and now the byproduct is that the gospel has flourished the gospel has exploded in such a way to where he could never take credit from it however he wants to spring us into the scenario and say hey in the same way that this was done here it can be done in the west end It could be done in Westview, and it could be done in Atlanta, that this is the mission of God, to take his redeemed people, place them in an environment of darkness, allow them to display God's light, and therefore he, by choice, now brings about increase. If there's one truth that I want you guys to take away from this text today as we dive in, it's the truth that the gospel thrives when our message is seen and heard. The gospel thrives when our message is both seen and heard. I'll unpack that as I go along. I mentioned earlier about how Paul, Timothy, and Sylvanus enter into a city full of idols, full of political institutions that have set up systems to oppress its people. They enter into the city with really no, no plan of action whatsoever other than we know what we've been called to do. They're coming off the cusp of Philippi where in Acts 17 we find out that Paul, Timothy, and Silas had been beatily brut- be- uh, brutally beaten. They had been tortured. They had been unjustly detained. The only saving work that occurred was that they found out that Paul was a Roman citizen and that the brutality that they experienced was a violation of Roman law. So therefore, they were let go. So as they wander off, they wind themselves, they wind themselves up in Thessalonia, And as they do that, they encounter a group of people. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 17. Acts 17 verses one through four. Luke helps us to understand what exactly Paul's initial efforts were there in Thessalonica. It says when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with him from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large group, or as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Luke gives us a clue as to how Paul engages his context. He sees the need and therefore he goes to a place, a common place where people naturally gathered. For three months it says, that term, he did this for the three consecutive Sabbaths, that means that for three months, day in, day out, week after week, month after month, Paul was in a place where people gathered and he did the same thing over and over again. Many of us, when we think of that reality, we would say we would have gotten bored after the first week. To go and have the same conversation over and over with familiar faces and different faces, that does not bring any type of excitement to our lives. We wanna see action. We wanna see people getting saved in that moment. We wanna see God move supernaturally through miracles, signs, and wonders. That's what we desire. However, Paul understood that oftentimes his persistency and his consistency communicated a desire that he was there for them and not his own selfish gain. The monotony of his responsibility and his task were not simply for his own pleasure or comfort, but they were for the benefit of those he desired to reach. How willing are we to discomfort ourselves for the sole purpose of seeing others reach with the gospel? How comfortable are we or how willing are we to go to places that are unfamiliar to us for the sole purpose of seeing people exposed to this good news of Jesus Christ? Paul does this over and over and over again. And the text says that as he was doing so, a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a few prominent women came to faith. The greatest indicator of true commitment is consistency. If you think about your lives, what are the things that you've excelled in most? What are the things that you have done repeatedly over and over and over again that have given you the greatest return or the greatest reward? Oftentimes that costed you something. That costed you time, that costed you energy, that costed you your own comfort at times, but with the end goal in mind, you found that all that you put into it was well worth the reward. All that energy and the time that you spent investing deeply, whether it be with your friendships or with your family or with coworkers or whatever it may be, at the end of the day, it was worth the risk. It was worth the energy. The greatest indicator of true commitment is consistency. Paul was committed to that. Paul didn't think of sharing the same truth over and over again as a burdensome task. Paul knew that the gospel message in and of itself was the power of God for salvation. It wasn't an empty message as those who had come before him had probably proclaimed, but no, there was something attached to this message. This message could actually change lives. Paul's initial approach, as we see in this text, is that he finds a group of people in a common place and he goes and he begins sharing the gospel over and over and over again, explaining it in its deep depths, hoping that people will grasp and understand it, and he wasn't gonna stop until they did. Paul, however, knows that the mere sharing of a message, the mere transfer of information wasn't enough. It was a great starting place but it definitely wasn't an end. It wasn't the finish line by any means. There was something more to that. That that message was more than a message. And so he begins to share with us in verses seven and eight what was attached to his efforts in sharing the message. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. Paul knows that the gospel is clearly seen as we share our lives with one another. The gospel is clearly seen as we share our lives with others. What had the gospel done in Paul's life to make him, to impact him so much that he was willing to do this day in and day out? Galatians 1.13, I'll read it for you, but Galatians 1.13 gives evidence to the work that God had done in Paul's life. It says, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church and tried to dis- destroy it. Paul previously was a terrorist. Paul murdered other Christians. Thinking that what he was doing was an act from God, Paul persecuted the very people that now, after the gospel transforming his life, he was giving his life for. Paul was eager to share a message because he realized that he had been impacted by its power. Oftentimes we're hesitant to share the gospel because we forget the impact that it's taken in our own lives. When's the last time you thought about your testimony? When's the last time you reflected on what your life was like before you met Jesus and how far he's brought you till now? That was constantly on Paul's mind. He couldn't forget it because he knew, the, he knew how far he was and how near the Lord had brought him. This allowed Paul to have no limits to giving people access into his life. Paul had nothing to hide. He had nothing to keep secret. He had no desire to manipulate people, to tell them things that he himself was not willing to live himself. No, Paul was an open book. He understood that in order for people to fully grasp the gospel, yes, a message is good, but I also, I've gotta let you see how this message has transformed me from the inside out. So he brings people near. He lets people get close. If the message were the cause, his life would be the effect. Paul understood that the greatest way to display God's power wasn't simply in just the message. The greatest way to display God's power was to let you look at the product, to let you see what God has done in our lives. This message, this gospel had so gripped Paul that everywhere he went, he wanted to tell those about it. How eager are you and I? to tell people about this very same message. How eager are you and I to tell people and to invite people in our lives to hear and to see this very same message. As he tracks along, he gives a little detail as into the change that is taking place in his life. This hard and callous murderous man has been so transformed that as he pens this letter, he writes it as a love letter. In verse eight he says, or verse seven it says, instead we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our very own lives you wouldn't think about a man like Paul saying that he became a mother to people. Of all the metaphors and imagery that he could have used for him to say, I became like a mother to you. And not just a mother, a nursing mother to you. This imagery came to life with me as I have four kids and in having four kids my wife breastfed and so all my kids were nursed and so as I Watch that process, a lot of things came to light when I thought about what it means to be a nursing mom. I'm thankful that that season of life is over. However, as I looked at that, as I looked back, I said, man, like my wife is a G. (laughs) The thing about being a nursing mom is that it requires you to be accessible at all times of the day. There isn't a time limit to when the child gets hungry, he just gets hungry or she just gets hungry and she calls or he calls. You become a walking vending machine in many ways. It feels as though you are simply food and not a person. As your kids get older, depending on how long you nurse, there's an interesting season that takes place where your kids start developing teeth. Yes, all the mothers gasp for air. <laughs> and the thing is that you really don't know they have teeth until it's too late. So one time as my wife and I were on the couch in our home and she was feeding my son, I remember this moment like it happened yesterday. My son was feeding and sometimes when he gets done and as you're, if you're not focused, they'll start playing these games and they'll start playing with the nipple. I hope it's okay to say nipple here. And so as my wife had, over time, had recognized and come to the awareness that, oh, you're just playing, you're not eating, she would tell him to stop. One time, however, she was so ingrained on the TV that she really didn't realize what was going on. So the next thing I know, I just feel a strong brace on my right arm and I look over and I see her grasping for something, trying to hold in the pain that she's experiencing right now. See, my wife is a G because she has so much higher of a pain tolerance than I do. My son later on had, as I was laying on the bed, he ended up biting me on my shoulder. I wasn't so slow to react. Let's just say I responded with a reflex. And that reflex sent him flying across the bed. The reality is is that the reason why Paul uses this example of what it means to be a nursing mom is because he understands that it was worth me denying all of my comforts, denying all of my desires, denying it was worth me living my life in such a way for your benefit. Paul became everything that he, he thought the Thessalonians needed because at the end of the day his desire was to win them to the gospel so whether that was continuing and experiencing opposition, experiencing suffering being accessible day in, day out Paul was willing to do that because he became like a nursing mother you see the gospel when it's at work in our hearts it can take the hardest of hearts it can take the life that doesn't embody or is the complete opposite picture of what God would want them to be and now it can mold it and shape it and produce within it a gentleness and a kindness that now God can use to benefit those he desires to be a part of his family. Paul, once a murderer, is now marked by tenderness, gentleness, one who says he so cared for these believers that he was willing to give it all. In verse eight, it says that we were delighted to share. Delighted. If you're anything like me, oftentimes people can sometimes feel more like a burden than a privilege. The demands can just seem so great that the last thing that I want to do is to give of myself. I'm so convicted and challenged by the way that Paul lived his life because that wasn't the case for him. Paul understood that in the same way he had experienced and received such an unconditional and sacrificial love that in return he could now offer it to somebody else. So he calls them to remember these things. One of my friends about four years ago, well, about three and a half years ago when we had been in this neighborhood for about three years, um, I remember a time where one of our neighbors, we were home one day and we looked out the door and all of a sudden we see this mob of kids standing in front of my neighbor's door. Immediately, we kind of rushed to the window and as we began to watch, we were trying to figure out what's going on. At the time we were staying in Section 8 housing and so it wasn't uncommon to hear people yelling and screaming. My neighbors loved to turn up so every single night, literally every single night the music was blasting, the drinks were flowing and they were out having a good time. But this day was different. This day something different was happening and so we inquired and we decided to check it out. The point that Kind of the place where it started to alarm us though was when these little kids that were yelling and screaming began to take shoes off and objects and began to try to force entry into their home. So as we walk out the door, I see my neighbors to the left of me on the stoop and they're just kind of watching and observing the scene. I remember like it was yesterday, the words that he said to me as I approached and tried to find out what's going on. How can I help? How can I calm the situation down? And he said, Richard, don't bother with that. We don't get in people's business over here. So at this point, there's 15 kids trying to force entry into my neighbor's home. And as he comes out and tries to confront them, boys start taking off shirts and girls start picking up tree limbs. And they were Intent on not stopping until they fulfilled what it is they came there to fulfill. As I talked to one of the girls, she began to say that the reason why they were so mad is because their daughter, their oldest daughter, had stolen one of these girls' boyfriends. I would later find out that these kids were all part of the same gang. And so they needed to make an example of her and they were willing to do whatever it took in order to do that. As those words rung through my mind, as I kind of weaved and bobbed through the crowd, the thing that was constantly on my mind was, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand the aggression, I don't understand the anger, but more importantly, I don't understand how you could sit here and watch this take place. So as I got to the door, I remember one of the girls taking a chair off their patio and throwing it through, the door, throwing it through their window. Here I am trying to mediate the situation and now I'm catching chairs and stopping, trying to prevent somebody from getting punched in the face all the while hoping that, man, I hope one of these kids don't punch me in my jaw. <laughs> Next thing I know, the dad has moved away from the door and so now he's surrounded by four boys and these four boys were small, but these boys were strong. You know how you see those little kids that are boys but they're in the body of a man? That's what these kids were. So I approach him and I'm trying to help him get away. And one of these kids turns on me. Shirts off, all off, six pack on. He's like, man, I'm about to fight you. So the first thing I'm thinking is like, man, this ain't gonna be a cool story if I get whooped by a 15 year old. (laughs) I start thinking in my head, okay, let me, I ain't been in a fight in a long time, but I might still have it in me. (laughs) Praying that man, God, give me a way out of this. Next thing you know, he turns his attention and the guy gets away and, long story short, as I walk back, as the cops come and as the kids disperse, one of the things that the neighbor said, he said, Richard, it doesn't doesn't take all that. It doesn't take all that to be a good neighbor, it doesn't take all that to be a friend. It's better to just live a life in complete isolation to what takes place in other people's lives." The gospel demands more than that. The gospel demands that when we see injustice, when we see the brokenness of others, that we intervene and we advocate for their behalf because the thing that's at stake is whether or not they will see an accurate portrayal of the God that we say we serve. And so it's it's worth the risk to give your life even though it may cost you your very own. It's worth the risk to inconvenience yourself for the sake of... Of others. The joy and the privilege that we've had of being here in this neighborhood has been seeing, experiencing, and sharing life with one another. There's a joy that comes when we can share in babies being had and weddings being taken place. There's a joy that had that, that that comes when we're able to share even in our sufferings when houses are being broken into, when cars are being stolen, and when people are being murdered on our front doorsteps, there's a joy of being able to go and comfort and encourage and challenge and remind one another of what God has called us to. This is what Paul is talking about. As he did this with the Thessalonians, he says, you became so dear to us. You became so dear to me. If I would ask y'all the question, who are you sharing your soul with? Who are you sharing your life with? Who is it that God has brought in your life that has immediately even now come to mind? Of opportunities that you've had to build deeper relationships with, but we just haven't been faithful with them. We just haven't taken them seriously. Who are those individuals? Though we can look at Paul and we can see a story of success in many ways, the Apostle Paul was probably the most powerful, one of the most powerful Christians ever to walk this earth. And so we see this example and we feel as though, man, that was Paul. I could never do that. God has given us his word to show how he can use men and women just like Paul. To change the world. So how does all of this end? Paul has shared a message with them and he's shared their, his life. And so what was the byproduct? <clears throat> that will take us back to, to chapter 1. In verse 4 he starts off by saying, for we know, brothers and sisters, This city of Thessalonica Thessalonica was no different than any city that we've been to or that we've lived in. No neighborhood that we may even live in right now. There's so many things in our communities that we can grow, that that we can look at and say, God, I'm overwhelmed by this. I don't know how you could change this. I'm grateful that we're given pictures of that help encourage us and help give us hope to the reality that, man, if the gospel can grow and the gospel can thrive here, that it can can thrive right here in the West End. So as a church, we invite you guys. We invite those that are here today, even those that are outside of this neighborhood, and we say, there's one thing that we want to do well there's one thing that we want to leave as a stamp on this community and that's that if you never get another opportunity, if you never are able to encounter a Christian again, that while we're here we want to give you that opportunity. We want to invite you into our lives and we want to share this message that's transformed us and we want to be so open that you're not only going to see our successes, you're going to see all that's still wrong with us. And then on top of that, what's the thing that makes us different, the thing that people really want to see about Christians that they don't see, is that we still sin, that we still fail. The only difference is, is that we can go to a savior who says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, a savior who offers us forgiveness that neither death nor height can keep us from his love. That is what the gospel does, and that is what we want to invite you into. That song, that's That song is, as I listened to it, it just, it reminded me of the fact that God, this is what we have access to. This is what you've given us. And then I saw faces of people that I want to experience and receive that same thing. That's what we offer. That's what we have to give. Don't wait for some standard or level of morality before you feel and believe that you have something to offer. People want authenticity. People just wanna know you're real. People think of most Christians as caricatures. They're laughable, they're fake. It's not until you bring people near that they see, man, I'm a person too, I'm just like you. And as you do that, the opportunities will come for constant conversation and seed and watering and seed and watering and investing and laughing together and crying together and suffering together and all of these things with the hopes that God would use it all to bring just one, if just one, person to know him. This is the beauty of the gospel. So if you sit here today and you've never experienced that, you've never thought about your. Christian life as being something that you are called to steward. That you're given a message, but you're also called to share that message with your lips and your life. I just want to encourage you today to say, from this day forth, you can change that. From this day forth, you have time to do just that. For those of you who are sitting here who may not even be Christians. And you keep hearing this word gospel, gospel, gospel. What does that mean? The message is simple. God created us with dignity, honor, and purpose. He called us into relationship with him and out of that relationship he required certain things from us to maintain and preserve that relationship. Because we are desirous of being in control of things, Adam and Eve in the garden, that moment that God had given them the command to say, hey, eat from all of these trees of the knowledge of good and evil, but eat from all these trees in the garden, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they rebelled against God. As a result, God being holy and just and perfect, he has to separate himself. He has to punish sin, and so therefore, there's a gap. God being discontent with that gap, knows that there's no way for you and I to live in a way that would ever bridge that gap. And so he has to send someone on our behalf. This person that he sends is Jesus. He sends his son Jesus to now live the life that we could never live, but also to die the death that we all deserved. Jesus gives his life for us and on that cross, all of the sins of the world are. He bears and he bores within his body. Three days later, after he's buried, he raises from the dead, proving that he alone is God. And then he makes, he offers us a gift. He offers each and every one of us a gift. And that gift is that if we would place our trust in Jesus, that the bridge, the gap, the broken relationship can be restored. All we have to do is confess with our lips and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is God and that he raised from the dead. That is the gospel. That is the simple message that he makes available for all of us. This is good news. This is good news. I'll close with this. Asked the question earlier, who is it? Who is it that comes to mind when you think of, man, I need to share this message and my life with? Who is that person? Would you commit today to not letting that just be an afterthought, but thinking through ways that you can create time and space to live life with them in hopes that they will come to know Jesus? Let us pray. Father, there's no greater responsibility, there's no greater privilege that you give um, us as your children than to steward your gospel, not only with our mouths, but with our lives, and so I pray that you will give us all the courage, the confidence, the assurance that we don't do in order to be accepted, Father, but we do because we are already accepted, And therefore, because of that acceptance, we can freely give away not being concerned with what we feel we deserve to be received. And so God, we thank you for the reminder of your word that that you love us, that you can produce, even within the hardest and most calloused of hearts, you can take that and soften it. Soften it in such a way to where the lives of others for all of eternity can be impacted And they can experience the tangible love of the Father. Father, again, we thank you. Be with us as as we leave. Would you take all that was said and would you use it to bear fruit in our lives so that we, like Thessalonians, can see the gospel spread, not only here, but all throughout the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.